So we're going to look at chapters 18 and 19 because chapter 19 should be relatively brief. Um, so we're looking again at different aspects of life outside of prayer, things that help our meditation, right? So we already went through the idea of recollection, which was chapter 17. And now chapters 18 and 19, chapter 18 deals with sort of a negative um, aspect of preparation or keeping ourselves in a space to be able to enter into contact or communication with, with God more easily. Then chapter 19 is another positive aspect, as chapter 17 recollection was, of spiritual reading. But it's a short chapter, so, so we'll just try to get through both of them. So with detachment, um, there's different ways that this could be spoken of, and one that, that I'll try to propose to you as the year goes on um, is, a, is a very Franciscan and a particularly St. Francis way of talking about it, of to live sine proprio, to live without anything of one's own. St. Ignatius of Loyola speaks of indifference. Um, some spiritual authors speak of spiritual freedom, which is a much more positive way of speaking of something like this. But what, we, what we're moving towards, or what we desire to move towards, is sort of this, uh, of being detached from things that hold us back from going to God, right? And so the spiritual life as a relationship, this prayer, uh, is really very, very simple. The question is, what sort of aids us in moving towards God, and what helps us? And there's this opposite pull in our life. And so detachment is one of these things that tries to remove the force of the opposite pole away from God. And of course, the opposite pole is strong because of original sin and our own personal sin and lots of other people's sin and bad choices and the world and the flesh and the devil, all of that stuff. But so detachment is, is looking specifically at how, to, how to, to lessen the sort of the pull away from God so that we're more consistently drawn towards him, and that when we enter into prayer, there's a certain readiness of our heart that's not quite as stuck on something as simple as dessert to something as difficult and long-standing as being stuck on myself, uh, which, which unfortunately lasts a long, long, long time. Um, so, the, in the book, it speaks of two principal hindrances, external objects and self-love, right? And I gave examples, external objects like dessert, self-love, my attachment to myself, my opinions, my ways, what I think of myself, my, my high uh, opinion, or sometimes, unfortunately, untrue low opinion. And so just to look at, first of all, the external objects. And so this is... Detachment in this sense is simply, uh, you know, with the help of God, not killing everything, right? So there's not, and unfortunately this is one of the things when people read John of the Cross, um, you get this idea, especially if you read the Ascent of Mount Carmel or something like that first, of just basically everything you like, you have to get rid of that, right? Kill it all, right? Just mow the whole thing down. If you have any inclination toward anything beautiful or, or, or nice or enjoyable, done with it, right? And that's not the healthy, healthiest way to approach the whole thing. But what we're specifically, and I'll, I'll talk to you guys about this more later in the year, where we're specifically looking 
is where sort of my capacity to love is hindered, right? Where is my capacity to love hindered? And so there may be beautiful, good things that I'm attracted to that assist me on my way to God, right? There may be beautiful, good things that I'm attracted to that God's not asking me to detach from yet, right? And so when we look at sort of this mortification, this, this uh, sort of removing those disordered inclinations or disordered affections, which hinder our love for Christ or our love for others, um, it allows us then this sort of positive goal. And the book, I, I like the, these, this particular, these particular aspects of what the book has here. This is page 108, just quoting Jesus, who's a, a very solid source, right, if we're ever going to find one. So this is Luke 16, 13. No man can serve two masters. Oh, interesting. An interesting application of this, right? For either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. And then this is just a great line from the author. Love to be perfect must be exclusive. Mm. Right? And this is, this is the commandment of Jesus, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's it. And so when there's an aspect of our heart, soul, mind, or strength that doesn't love God, right? Well, then, in some way, that needs to be denied or rooted out or removed. And so, but, but the, the great thing about this one sentence, love to be perfect must be exclusive, is that it gives a great clarity as to the positive nature of mortification. I would also like to suggest that, and this would take us very far afield, and so we won't go there, but I'll just say it. Love to be perfect must be exclusive gives a very strong indication of the logic of religious life and consecrated life. Right? And not that married people can't love God completely. Of course, that's possible. But there's this, this manner that the religious, the man and woman consecrated to God in religious life, has this beautiful road of, of moving towards exclusivity of love of God in a, in, a, in a radical and quick way, if we take advantage of it. Right. But so detachment, right, has the same logic that our whole religious life has. Now, St. John of the Cross is a little bit of a, a, you know, a, sort of an expert on these things. The translation isn't the best here, but I'll give you some John of the Cross. This is from the Ascent of Mount Carmel. Again, I, I caution you about going into the Ascent of Mount Carmel or trying to ascend Mount Carmel. Uh, maybe talk to me first if you're thinking about it. But anyways, John of the Cross says, this is 108 to 109. It is for this reason that we say of this state that it is the making of two wills into one, namely into the will of God, which, which namely into the will of God, which will of God is likewise the will of the soul. For if the soul desired any imperfection that God wills not, there would not be made one will of God, since the soul would have a will for that which God had not. It's a little, but anyways. So what is this saying? Let's, let's try to, I don't have the Spanish here, but the basic idea is, again, and I've mentioned this to you before, union, right? So if we're talking about relationship, the ultimate thing that we aspire to, and we believe that every man and woman is made for, is union with God perfectly 
and without any difficulty in the next life, but even possibly in a very full way here. So union is, is, uh, is, is what we're going for. How does this union happen is the question. And John of the Cross gives a very clear teaching, along with I'm sure many other uh, great saints, that the union occurs by the union of wills. St. Maximilian Kolbe, right? Per perfection or union is the little w plus the big w, right? And so basically, my will has to become God's will. Because God's will is God's will, right? So his will is all set. My will is a disaster, you know, or at least as sometimes it is. And so if you want to enter into union with God, we can do all sorts of stuff, but the ultimate answer is that my will has to be conformed, become one with his will. And that is a union of love, right? Love is in the will. And so what John of the Cross is saying here is if, if, the, if, the, if willing what God wills, and for that to happen, we need a tremendous amount of grace of God. But so if our will is drawn towards something other than God, like a cupcake or something like that, right? If the cupcake is not God's will for me, and my will is drawn to it, there's a problem. So for my will to be conformed to God's will, I have to let go of the cupcake. I may have to deny, choose not to eat the cupcake, right? This is a very simple, because the thing that your will is most attached to is yourself. Hmm. Or the spirit of the flesh, like St. Francis calls it. And so because we're so caught up with ourselves, our own, how, how wonderful we think we are, even when you don't think you're, you're wonderful, you still do think you're wonderful. It's just a bit of a messed up way that that happens. So anything that our will is attached to, John of the Cross says it's simple in some ways, even though in practice it's difficult, is we need to deny it so that our will can be free to be united to God's will. Boom. Now, it sounds simple. It's not always so simple, but that's basically what he's saying. And then John of the Cross gives what can be a somewhat daunting kind of examples. These habitual imperfections, right? So now he's, he's saying, and here's a crazy teaching of St. John of the Cross. St. John of the Cross says, I may have mentioned this to you previously, I can't remember. Um, he says that there can be fully voluntary venial sins, but then there can be semi-voluntary venial sins where we fall into sin, but the will wasn't fully, totally engaged. In any case, it's somewhat. But he says habitual imperfections are a greater obstacle to union with God than some sorts of sin. So there may be certain things that are not sin in and of themselves in your life. So for instance, you have, right, you have every you have a breviary, and no one's ever going to ask you to take that breviary away. It's not sinful that you have that breviary, but if you were unduly attached to that breviary, it would not necessarily be a sin, but it would be a bigger obstacle than if, let's say, for instance, you, I, I, you know, I asked Brother Juan Maria, Brother Juan Maria, did you eat a cookie yesterday? And just out of fear, just out of, he goes, no, I didn't, but he did, right? He didn't, I'm sure, but in any case. <laughs> But so if he was just like out of fear, just like semi-voluntarily just told a little lie, 
that would be less of an impediment to union with God than if he was unduly attached to the bravery that he rightly has or the cell that he rightly has. So here's the, the imperfections. Habitual imperfections are, now you've got to remember, John of the Cross is writing for cloistered nuns and a bunch of Carmelite brothers, right? So some of these sort of revolve around that, and maybe a little bit less so for us, but it's something to just be attentive to without becoming fixated or scrupulous. Don't be scrupulous. These habitual imperfections are, for example, a common custom of much speaking or some attachment which we never set enti wish entirely to conquer, such as to that person a garment, a book, a cell, a particular kind of food, Tittle-tattle, I'm not really sure what that's supposed to be. I have no idea what the Spanish was for that one. Fancies for tasting, knowing or hearing certain things, and such like. Any one of these imperfections as the soul has become attached and habituated to it is as if, is as of as great a harm to its growth and its progress in virtue as though it were to fall daily into many other imperfections and casual venial sins, right? So basically, right, and again, we, I, this is not the time to get all freaked out about this whole thing, but basically, John of the Cross is just laying down a principle, is that if we get rooted in some earthly thing instead of God or outside of his will, it keeps us from union with him. And one of the things John of the Cross is going to say is, listen, it may just... Now, in some cases, it's, it's not going to be just this easy, but it may just be, you just need to let it go, right? You just need to let it go. And he says, it's one of his famous quotations, that the eagle is kept from flying as easily by a thread as it is by a chain. So even if the, the habitual imperfections or these attachments, these disordered attachments, are relatively small, right? Relatively small it still keeps an eagle from flying away, right? And so his ultimate thing is going to be, hey, listen, as you come to recognize that these things are a reality in your life, let them be cut. Now, at this point, is this one I want to bring this in? Well, let, let, I may just keep on rolling a little bit. Let me see what 109 is here. From the very fact that the soul becomes affectionated, like attached to, to a thing which comes from under the head of creature, right? Some kind of an earthly created thing, that the more desire for that thing fills the soul, the less capacity has the soul for God. Fascinating. It's just a simple idea, right? If your soul was represented by this box, right? Fortunately, I'm sure your soul is much nicer looking than that. But just simply, right? If like this part of the box of your soul was filled up with whatever, uh, self-importance, then God only has this much to fit. He's only got 70%. Now, this isn't exactly how it works, but this is John of the Crosses. He's just like, listen, you have a finite capacity. There's, an, there's, in a sense, our soul has infinite possibilities, of, uh, you know, once God really inhabits it fully. But you can't, you know, you can only serve one master. 
So if it's filled with something else, then it has less capacity of the soul for God. Francis of Assisi, St. Francis, has this fascinating uh, a term that he uses throughout his writings of purity of heart or cleanness of heart or cleanness of conscience or these sort of all these different terms. I was just reading about this the other day. I think he's getting at something similar where he's just saying your soul, your heart needs to be free to be filled with God, right? Because otherwise, it's just, it's never going to be full. Inasmuch as two contraries, according to the philosophers, cannot coexist in one person. So affection for God and affection for creatures are contraries, and thus there cannot be contained within one will affection for creatures and affection for God. So he's basically just saying, hey, listen, you, you can only be filled with one thing, or that part of you can only be attracted to one. It's one master or the other, right? Just like Jesus says. And so, some general norms. It's important if we're going to deny ourselves anything, and I do encourage you, like after my class today, like don't just start to make a laundry list of all the things that you might possibly be attached to, right? A great thing to do well, is to ask the Lord, okay, what in my life would you like me to let go of? Or, Holy Spirit, I give you permission to give me clarity about what I'm attached to, right? To use the image from Father uh, Michael Gately, you know, so like, what are the donuts that I'm holding on to in my life? What are the donuts that I'm holding on to? First of all, make sure you're holding on to Jesus' hand with the other hand, but like, what are the donuts? Some of them you may not be ready to let go of yet, and God is, can honor that. Some of them God may not even want you to try to let go of yet because it's just too much. But there may be other things that in his love he says, well, look at that. Look at this thing. Maybe let go of that. Right? Whether it's a book, whether it's just a particular relationship. Again, in novitiate, you get a lot of stuff taken away from you anyways. So you got to be a little bit careful not to kill yourself. But we, we need to take, when we're doing, you know, considering what would I, we detach from, it should be with a realistic view of its positive function in the spiritual life. So it's not just, maybe I'll fast from all these different kinds of foods and just try to, like, starve myself. No. Like, its motivation is always love. What do I need to let go of now, at this moment, to be able to be drawn more to the beloved? Right? And self-denial should be generous, but it's better to begin with smaller things, right? And we really need to let God lead us in it. And we need to be careful with physical mortifications. I would really underline that, particularly today. Honestly, you know, uh, people ask me the differences between, you know, like 200 years ago and 400 years ago and... St. Francis and John of the Cross and Ignatius of Loyola and the Capuchins and then us. Well, a couple things I would say is one is physiologically, I think physically we're weaker. Now we may live longer because we have a lot better health care. Um, and there may be certain exceptions to this, right? Like there's certain brothers that we have in the community that grew up in sort of a, a not United States sort of safe very taken care of sort of household, and they tend to be just a lot stronger. Like guys that grew up on farms are just 
they're just stronger. Like you can lift weights all day and you may not be able to do what they do. Don't lift weights all day though, that's not okay. But also, so I think we need to be careful with physical penances because we, we just can't always do in many different ways and we shouldn't always do what saints did. I would also suggest that psychologically, I think we're a lot weaker, a lot weaker than previous generations. Now, why is that? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not some great master of psychology or, you know, this great historian to be able to say it. But, I mean, like, how many people need to go see psychologists today and all of this stuff? And that just wasn't the case 150 years ago. And it's not the case in every culture either. Yeah, this is interesting. So what's all going on there? I don't know. But that's all some reasons that I would say we need to be careful about physical penances, and we also need to be a little bit careful about not overdoing it, just recognizing our physical and psychological limitations sometimes, right? And, and it's, I, I would just really say that while sort of our, our choices to detach ourselves from things needs to be generous, it needs to be led by Jesus, right? It really needs to be within the context of love. Like, okay, Lord, you love me. Now, in that love, what are you asking me to let go of so that I can come to you more easily, so there can be more space in me to be loved, and so I can return that love in a greater way, right? So those are just a few things, and we can talk about it more, and you, you may have some specific questions. The general principles are very important. The saints show it clearly, but those are just some guidelines that I would offer from the book. Uh, so that's pretty much all that is, well, a lot of it can be uh, applied to interior stuff too, but that's mostly external stuff, although it certainly could be applied to relationships and such. And um, before I move into humility, which is more of a detachment from stuff interiorly, any questions or anything that you find particularly interesting that you think I blew by or... And I need to be attentive to. Mm -hmm. um, with Francis, like in Franciscan spirituality, like he did this, like he detached himself, like he was very self, but I feel like he also like mortified. Like you kind of just spoke about this, a mortification. But how, how much of, like do you think for Francis was his motivation like, like this is keeping me from doing Lord's will or like that kind of other weird like Interesting. Yeah. So let me see if, if I'm understanding your question correctly. So in, this, in the example of St. Francis, he obviously was detached from stuff. But is your question, was Francis only doing penances and denying himself for the sake of his own freedom? Or was he also doing it for the sake of others, both for example and in, in the sense of prayer, doing reparation or such things? I don't know that I know Francis well enough to be able to, to state that definitively. And as I look at him more and more, I'm like, man, this guy was really, he was, he kept his cards pretty close to his chest when it came to his interior spiritual life. He was extremely discreet, right? Um, every once in a while in his writing, sort of like things go boop, they sort of like pop out. Every, you're like, wow, what's going on inside there, you know? And I mean, so I would think with somebody like Francis, we definitely know that there was an aspect that he did 
that was, you know, to, to set things in right order, to detach himself from things that kept him from God. Certainly, um, within that, he also was very conscious of being an example for others. Like, he was very conscious of, of not like, okay, so like, I don't want to sleep in this place because what will that look like for the brothers? Like, I don't want to be a bad example. I don't want to scandalize my brothers. I don't want to be a hypocrite, right? And so, you know, like, <laughs> there's a story of, you know, the one time that he, he ate, whatever it was, chicken or something seasoned with lard um, in his sickness, and then he asked a brother to take him by a rope and lead him through town and tell everybody that he had done that, right? Now, we would never think of doing that through the streets of Newark, right? And if you asked me, I would tell you no, right? I would tell you no. Um, but so surely, but, but here's the other thing I would say is... Um, the mystics like entered into, like as they, it, it seems to me, as they enter into like a deeper and deeper relationship with God, and particularly with the person of Jesus Christ, that their desire to become associated with the passion increases. And so how much of what Francis did was also this part of his own desire to like be associated to just to be close to Jesus in that place of his own um, lang like the, being the Lamb of God, you know? So I was just reading a book the other day where there was this fascinating kind of split. It was by uh, Uribe where he spoke of um, Francis's poverty, um, sort of associating himself with the manger, but then Francis desiring to follow Christ as the servant of Yahweh in the passion. Like this idea that Francis was really had this sense of the suffering servant and that he had this desire to be, to be there with Jesus. So when you, when you get to that place like, I don't know that I can really say much more about what's going on, and, but it's clear, like from the Office of the Passion, that, that writing of Francis, that he really entered into Jesus's interior life. Now, was that mystically? Was that just in meditation? That I, I don't know. Uh, unlike Adrian von Speyer, he just never told us, right? Um, but so... So I would say it's almost certainly both and. Is that fair enough? Yeah, but that's a great question. Because certainly in every life, and this is one of the things of Fatima, and, is that detachment is not simply for my own perfection, and not even simply just to be able to enter into right, perfection in the sense of union with God, but also as a real means of prayer and intercession for others. And so that is a very legitimate thing that we're not touching on so much right now. But it's a great question. Um, talking about this, I was talking about this a little bit before last year, so I'm just curious to your thoughts on it. But like, um, and kind of similar to just like that wrestling with what we were talking about on retreat last week, the Capuchin tradition, and because um, the Capuchin tradition is pretty cynical and, and penitential. Like we read these lives, and there's definitely something in our yeah. In our 
tradition that is to make people live that way. And like, so I'm just wondering about like, is there an element in some, in, in some or some application in some place in our life for like uh, taking on penance, not necessarily from like, not necessarily like the sort of where it like kind of flows from an interior interior place, particularly versus this like just like adding a list of things to do, but like we, we just talk about like is there a place of um, certain penances, taking on penances, because like if I'm called to a Capuchin vocation, that's part of our tradition and it's part of like the way of holiness mm -hmm. that we're called to. So right. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. So I would say a couple of, so I guess I would say a thing or two about the question of taking on penances. So first of all, our constitutions are based off the Capuchin constitutions. So part of our constitutions is we do a 40-day fast before Christmas and a 40-day fast before Easter, and that's prescribed in a particular way. The other religious communities I know of that do that are like cloistered Carmelites and stuff like that. Like, that's pretty intense. Um, there's certain other aspects of our life that... I, like if we're talking about like taking on penances, it was specifically in the sense of like intercession, right? And, and sort of in the Capuchin tradition, I'd say first of all, do with joy and fully what we got, right? Then I would say, what's the interior motivation moving you towards something more? And that's the question that I think has to be answered that we can't answer in a classroom. Um, because, because the danger is taking on penances with the idea that somehow this makes me right, special, important, different, better, or that I want to punish myself in a particular way. Or, so it can just go off, right? It doesn't have to. But I would say just when we start to move in a direction of can I do something more, then we need to just... Because God's will comes to us through the constitutions. God's will comes to us through the other things that we'll take on as a community. Or like the little things that like we decided that we're, as, a, as a friar we were fasting on Wednesdays. Right? So that's imposed on you because of us. Beautiful. Right? So you get double credit for that. Right? Or however it works. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but so as somebody moves into these other things. And this is where I, I say like the, the Capuchins I just think were men who had, uh, for whom simplicity was almost more like second nature. And so I think they were able to move into with a lot less psychological baggage and a lot less probably physiological baggage, some of this stuff, when it, it's, it's a little bit, we need to be a little bit more careful because I think of our makeup, which doesn't excuse us from it at all, but I just think we need to discern it a bit better before just launching in like it seems like some of these guys did. That, th those are some of my thoughts, at least. And like, yeah, that makes sense. And so, I guess, and like you said, like, we can't like, get into like, the actual answer to that interior question in a class, but like, the question that kind of popped in my mind is like, I guess like a, uh, an ideal answer to that question is like, that the invitation is in, like, in prayer, interior invitation from the Lord. Like, would you say, so like, if somebody came to you, I'm not saying I'm going to do this because I'm not planning to. Okay. Good. Previous conversations with people. Somebody came to you, a novice or, or a TP or, or a spiritual director, whoever, with this who wants to take on a particular penance in the, uh, that's not in the Constitution, something extra. 
And like the response to that question is not necessarily like, uh, yeah, that sort of like a, like a interior invitation in prayer, but rather like, um, because Father, I'm a Capuchin and like, I just don't, I don't feel it. You know what I mean? Like, do, would you say that that is a, a legitimate answer slash motivation? Or? Yeah. Well, so if somebody just said, well, because I, I'm in, we're in the Capuchin tradition and I just really, I, I, whatever, I don't feel like I'm living that legitimately. I feel like I, I would say, tell me more about that. I would, I would see where that's coming from. And I wouldn't necessarily relegate, like, to do more penance from, from just, like, uh, it comes to me in prayer or something. You may just be at the front door and encounter, like, the brokenness of, of somebody who's addicted to drugs and just feel moved, like, I want to do something more to pray for them. Or you may, you may you know, be driving down through Manhattan and realize, like, the world is insane with food. I'd li like, and just feel moved to like, I'd like to just simplify some part of my diet somehow or whatever, right? So there could be lots of different ways, but the thing I would say is we really, we wanna see if it's, if it's feeding into a place of self-love, which is the point we're about to get to, and is it coming from a place of love? Like I'm moved by the person at the door. I'm moved by like how lost people are in our society and how sucked up, you know, sort of like taken up they are with a certain material, kind of just stuck in the material thing. And it might move me to say, I want to detach on their part in some way, right? Um, so I would say there, there's more, right? There's more, like I could come in a lot of, God can work through all sorts of stuff. And, um, and my only thing is we just need to, to just be listening, just be attentive, yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, good. All right, let's talk about self-love for a minute, because everybody's got it. When we, when we had the, uh, yeah, nothing to rejoice about, but anyways, <laughs> when we had, uh, when we had our, I think I could say this, uh, when we had our servants meeting with Father Sanji, we were, we were talking about, among other things, uh, personality disorders. There, there's, a, there's a fun topic. And so we were talking about uh, narcissistic personality disorder, and uh, it was all Zoom, so I was in the room with whatever, 11 other guys. So Father Sanji was looking at us. He's like, let's see, I can count one. And he's like, okay, so there's about 11 guys in that room over there. Ten of them, I would guess, are narcissists. He's like, everybody's got it. It's not the personality disorder, right? But everybody is too self-centered, too self-focused, and shows some traits of narcissism, right? And so uh, narcissism is this, again, this comes from, is it Narcissus? Is that the Greek, right? So this guy who was so, was looking at uh, himself in the water and was so enchanted by his own appearance that he, just felt, that he just stayed there and then he fell in and died, right? And that is what we can all do. That's, that's, where we're, that's where we're headed, right? So humility, moves against this interior self-love. And again, I drew this, this, this sort of thing for you before, you know, if this is, if this is my pathetic little stick figure person, man, right? And so I'm designed ultimately for, for my heart, for my will to be drawn out of me to God and to others for God's sake. But what happens is it turns, instead of a straight line out, it turns into this circular line where I just end up staring back at myself. And so part of healthy detachment 
And we can never do this on our own, right? This is one of the fundamental teachings of the spiritual life. Is, is to grow in humility is to decrease the amount that this happens, right? The amount that I'm just staring back at myself. And all, you know, I mean, a lot of people could be sitting here and we, we look at it and we realize, oh yeah, no, I, I do that to, in this way, in this way. But usually there's a number of other ways that we fall into this that we're not aware of, right? So let's just see here, I have some, some notes. Humility, which goes against self-love, right? Pride, vanity. Humility, by way of definition, is a virtue which gives us realistic understanding of our position in the universe through an evaluation of our inherent poverty. In other words, humility strikes a lethal blow to self-love. Excuse me. By, uh, by disengaging us from our native fascination with our own excellence. Hmm. Pride tends to focus one's effective powers inward upon himself. Humility creates a dissatisfaction with self and turns the soul's love outward toward God. Because, again, of a certain psychological frailty that's found in most of us, we need to be careful about what we understand these words to mean, right? So, when St. Francis talks about, you know, um, the one who's truly poor in spirit looks down upon him, despises himself, and loves the one who strikes him on the cheek, it's true. We probably have a long way to go before we really understand what that means, and we can understand it in a healthy way. So the ultimate goal, to just say this, is because when, we, when I read this, I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's right, it's good, but it sounds like we have to like kill this thing in ourselves. The real way that I understand humility to grow and, and the loss of self-love, and self-love is um, attributing to ourselves the good that we do. So St. Francis is huge on this, right? St. Francis, when he's praying, he's, he's like over it, like a, a number of times in his prayers. He says, he's speaking to God, good, all good, the highest good, you who alone are good. That's a humble man. Most of us don't believe that. We think God is good, and I'm pretty good too. You know, like, yeah, right? Oh, I sang nicely the other day. I gave a little homily, you know what I'm saying? And so the truly humble person, what's the goal, though? Is just like to despise yourself and to beat yourself down? Probably not in the way that we think. The ultimate goal is that we lose sight of ourselves. That, like, our interior self disappears. Now, you don't know what that looks like. But the reason I say that to you is because we need to be careful about thinking that we can just despise ourselves or beat ourselves to a place of humility and self-knowledge. But it's not possible, brothers. You will only end up focusing on yourself more in a negative way, right? Unfortunately, we tend, we tend um, I think in, in our modern day, we, we, and maybe this has always been true, but I see it true in both ways. We can have this really negative thoughts about ourselves but actually, it's really self-focused still. It's self-love with a different costume. And then we have the typical self-love thoughts. Well, at least I'm better than that guy. Or, you know, like, at least I didn't do that stupid thing over there. Or, you know, like, you know, 
Oh, he, he, he said that? I can't believe he said that, right? So, okay, I'm so much better than him. But it's all about me, right? But, but sometimes it can be like, oh, I'm no good. I'm never going to change. But it's still all about you, right? True humility is I'm so caught up with God and the other that I just forget about me, right? And again, you can't do this on your own. But if humility is truth, it really is coming to know, but you can't just know it in your head. It has to be a, an experience that really, I am nothing. But that's not a sad thing. It's because I'm an infinitely loved nothing. That's my own definition. I got that walking in Monticello one day, many years ago. I'm an infinitely loved nothing. And we're going to talk about this more when we looked at poverty of spirit, when we look at St. Francis's idea of living sine proprio. But, but Francis is, is going to say this time and time again. Only God is good. Only God is good. And he knew it to the depths of his heart. And that's why he was able to be united to God so profoundly. Humility sounds like this, brothers. John chapter 15, verse 5. Without me, you can do nothing. That's what humility is. It's, it's really owning that to the depths of our heart. Humility sounds like, I need you for everything. Right? Because that's just true. Humility is living in truth, and I need God for everything. That's it. And so, this appreciation of our utter dependence on God represents the first of two mental attitudes necessary for humility. The second attitude consists in a recognition of our inferiority in relation to our fellow men and esteem others as better than ourselves, which I would suggest comes most in the most beautiful way when we begin to be filled with God's love for other people and we begin to esteem them and, again, to forget about ourselves. And so this is the direction that, that uh, and this is a lifelong journey, but it's a necessary part of the journey, and it's something that we need to be attentive to without being negatively focused upon as we go forward. And the chapter has lots of other nice things to say, so I think that's what I'll, I'll say about it for the time being. Any other questions, thoughts, answers? Great. Let me say something about chapter 19. Spiritual reading. Um, I'm really only going to say a few, a few things about it. It's a positive aspect of preparation for meditation. And it's very simply, it's easier to meditate when one has a greater grasp of the material. And there's a direct influence, meaning I can read, like, let's say I read a Bible commentary, you know, like I... Uh, like Father Sebastian, like I just have, I carry a Bible commentary with me always, everywhere, right? So that's direct influence, right? So he's reading things, and the next time he reads the scriptures or he goes to prayer, like information right from there could become fodder for him to pray, right? Could become something that like sort of sparks something for him in prayer. Then there's also indirect, right? So spiritual reading can also indirectly help us so it may not provide information that will actually spur us on in prayer, 
but it can foster a climate in which it becomes increasingly easier to conduct our conversation with Christ. So, like, if somebody was, like, I know none of you would do this because they don't, it's not even possible for you, but if somebody was reading, like, a dime novel, do you even know what those are? No. So there's those novels in grocery stores that have, like, all sorts of inappropriate, not totally inappropriate, but inappropriate pictures, and they're mostly filled with trashy romances and stuff like that, right? So you could read those, and that's going to create an interior environment that's going to make it very difficult to pray, right? Or it might be depressing, but you could read Dostoevsky, right? And that might create an environment, now it might depress you, but it might create an interior environment that allows you to just more easily enter into prayer, even if nothing from the novel enters directly into your time of meditation, right? And particularly with younger men like yourselves, some of whom have not been that long in your conversion, you know, depending, that it's even more important in the initial years to feed yourself good stuff because you fed yourself garbage for a while in certain cases, right? And all of us have. Uh, well, maybe not all of us, but unfortunately, too many of us have. And particularly, you know, like, even as I you know, sort of glance at news and things like that, like, we live, like, we're, we, we're inundated by such an atheistic kind of culture. Like, God is just sort of, there's no mention of God in so much of inf the information that's, that's sort of sent your way, whether it's through movies or music or just news or whatever, that particularly as we, as we desire to sort of form an interior environment that's going to be more conducive to prayer, it's also important to just for spiritual reading to be able to enforce really a theistic or a Catholic Christian view of the universe, right? And of world events and of history and such things. Um, so again, there can be this sort of direct thing like reading Bible commentaries or the imitation of Christ or something like that, or more indirect uh, informing, fostering this kind of environment of prayer that allows you to enter into and through life uh, more readily identifying God and, and, and recognizing uh, sort of his ways of working and stuff like that. Blah, 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 blah. So that's what I had to say about chapter 19. Any other thoughts, questions? It's a pretty straightforward uh, idea. It is something, I would say, as CFRs, it's important that you, and I'm not always the best uh, example of this, so, so do what I say, not what I do in this particular case, but it's, it's important to continue to keep space for spiritual reading as you continue in your CFR life. Some religious communities have time for spiritual reading every day. We don't. Right? So it's a part, it should be a part of your life, but it's not a part of our schedule or our constitutions. So something I encourage you in for these reasons, but, um, but you're going to have to work to have that. You know? Unless you become the novice director, then your spiritual reading becomes everything that you teach the novices. Hmm, okay. But that won't happen to probably any of you, but in any case, maybe. Dios sabe. Okay. <laughs>